Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hi, everyone. This is Mallory Ortberg, and welcome to the third ever episode of the Dear Prudence podcast, which you are presumably listening to at this very moment and is either hidden secretly behind the Sleep Plus paywall or is being given to you for free by our benevolent overlords at Slate. And either way, I hope that you're enjoying it and getting your money's worth. Um, And I'm also thinking very much today about like markers of emotional and spiritual fitness, like little little tests that kind of remind you in the middle of the day, oh, I'm not doing great today. Um, and, and mine is uh, what or whom I blame when I spill drinks in the car. Um, I, I have a lot of sympathy for people who are chronically late. I struggle with chronic lateness. It is never my intention to be late. I don't sit around twiddling my thumbs thinking, I'm so excited to waste everyone's time today. I genuinely think this is going to take me six minutes to get from, like, my couch, not dressed, not ready, I don't know where any of my stuff is, to physically at wherever I'm supposed to be, because I'll just do it. Um, And that's something I have to fight all of the time. Um, And when I'm emotionally and spiritually fit when I am just sort of like present and in the moment and being responsible and 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 caring and thoughtful and thinking about other people throughout the course of my day. I can usually manage to leave my house and have everything that I need with me and have some sort of drink, usually tea. Um and and I'm ready to go and I'm not speeding over speed bumps and I'm just like I'm there. And sometimes I'm like, oh I'm already late. And I have to hurry and I'll do like the waitress carry that I perfected where you don't look at the beverage that you're carrying because as long as you keep your eyes forward, you're less likely to spill. Um, But inevitably, if you're the kind of person who brings their tea in the car with you, especially if you're not the kind of person who has travel mugs, and let's be honest, the kind of person who's chronically late is not the kind of person who has like specific travel mugs that they bring in advance, Um and inevitably, I'll spill. I'll hit a speed bump. I'll take a right turn a little too fast, and the tea will slosh out either into the cup holder or, if I'm less fortunate, onto my clothes. And if I'm doing okay in life, if I'm kind of like keeping right sized and remembering that I'm just like part of a rich tapestry that is here now and will someday be gone, I'll think, oh man, you know, that's frustrating, but it's totally on me. Like, I can't blame anyone else for this tea spilling. And um, if I'm not in that place, I'll think, I know how Dark Willow felt at the end of season six of Buffy when she tried to raise hell demons to, like, remove the skin of every living being on Earth and, and send it to actual hell. And I'll just think, this is the fault of everyone around me. I wish everyone was dead. I wish I was stepping over their dead bodies and, and just, like, walking over their corpses to my glorious throne. Um, which is a very strange response to have to, like, there's tea on my life now. Willow's killing and people I love keep dying. You need help. The magic's too strong. There's no coming back. I'm not coming back.
And on that note, let's talk about professionalism and workplace behavior. Uh, I'm talking with Allison Green today, and she runs the website Ask a Manager. Um, and she's been doing that for, for at least six years, I believe. Uh, I've been reading it on and off uh, while I've had jobs, while I've been unemployed, while I've been working several jobs, while I've been working from home, while I've been running my own business. Um, and it's always fascinating. And she has way more professional experience than I do. And she probably never spills tea on her legs. And if she does, she certainly doesn't want everyone else to die um, in order to feel better about herself. Allison, welcome to the show. Hi, Mallory. I spill things on myself all the time. It's it, it, You just want to have someone to blame so badly, but you can't. You know, I was thinking about this while you were doing your intro. I mess small things up in my life all the time. Like my life is a series of little catastrophes one after another. Mm -hmm. And I think I decided a long time ago that the only way I was going to have any quality of life was if I found it funny. So now I think I've gotten to a place where I genuinely find it amusing. And it's actually, I mean, I'm going to be spilling daily for the foreseeable future. Right. So better to find it funny than to, you know, Go into a homicidal rage. Yes. No, that's usually when I, when I can laugh it off, that's good. And the days when I'm like, my dignity has been compromised. That's going to be a bad day. <laughs> um, Allison, I wanted to tackle a bunch of questions together. Um, but I also wanted to talk a little bit about Ask a Manager. One of the first um, letters on Ask a Manager that I remember following avidly and getting really excited when there was a follow-up is something that I feel like uh, it really exemplifies what I love about your advice column was the one where um, someone had an employee who came to them and said, you know, uh, I've been mismanaging my company credit card and I've amassed something like $20,000 of personal debt on it. Like they were, I think, trying to get themselves out of debt and were paying off like their rent or student loans with the company credit card and had just yes. dug themselves into this terrible, terrible hole, came to their manager in a panic and they wrote to you. The manager wrote to you, I believe. Um asking, like, how do I handle this? And I remember reading that and thinking, well, obviously, like, you're going to have to fire them and you'll never get the money back and it'll be this horrible mess. And you you sort of continue to follow up with them and it actually, they were able to not only pay it back, but but keep the employee on. Is that, am I remembering it well, correctly? Well, so it, almost, it was the guy himself, the one who had racked up all the debt, who wrote in. Oh, that's amazing. Um, and yeah, he had used it to buy, a, he'd used his company credit card for all these personal expenses. He'd used it to buy a car and he'd paid off some of his girlfriend's expenses on it. And he'd oh, wow. gotten up to $20,000 in debt on this company card. And I mean, the weird thing is that normally you can't do that, even if you want to do it, which most people don't. There's normally no logistical way to do it because your company is paying attention to the billing statements and there, there just wouldn't be a way for them to not catch it. But in right, this it was a case, sort of perfect storm of like somehow no one had been checking his statements yeah, from month to month for a long time. I think it was a small company and he'd been there a while and they just trusted him. And so he wrote to me. And I mean, it's easy to say, I mean, it's easy to really take someone like that to task. I mean, obviously, there's no there's no question here. He shouldn't have done that. He knew it was wrong. Sure. Um, but he, when he wrote to me, he was really upset and he was racked with guilt and he knew he was going to lose his job if he came clean but and he felt like he had to come clean but he didn't know what to do and he felt like he would just be in a bigger hole if he lost a job because how would he earn the money to pay it back and no one would hire him when they heard that he'd been fired for doing that and he was just emotionally a mess I mean as as one should be in that situation right. um yeah. And then he wrote back with an update. One of the greatest things, one of my favorite things about doing the blog is getting updates when I find out, did people take the advice? Did they not? And then what happened? Um, he wrote back and he had taken the advice. He had talked to his manager and he had come clean and he was completely prepared to be fired. And 
miraculously, I mean, I don't know what to make of this, they didn't. And they were working, I mean, they're obviously very upset, but they were working with him on a plan to get it paid off. Yeah, no, I remember thinking that was so remarkable. Not because I think that's like a great policy that all managers should adopt if they find out their employees have been, um, you know, misappropriating funds. But um, it seemed to me just the sort of like wonderful example of what a really good advice column can do, right? Which is like you weren't minimizing what he had done, but you weren't there to scold him. You weren't there to say, you know, you really shouldn't have done that because that was already very clear. Um, And you sort of offered this wonderful like path out that was sort of like, well, this won't, you know, punish you in the way that a lot of people might want to see you punished. But this is maybe the most effective route because firing you probably would make it more difficult for your manager to get the money back. And here's a way for you to be really honest um, and really vulnerable and um, for kind of everyone to, like, minimize the fallout from this if if they're willing to do it. And then to see the follow-up was just amazing. Yeah, the follow-up was great. And I think, too, I mean, there have definitely been letters where the person had no self-awareness about how in the wrong they were. And with a letter like that, sometimes I will sort of come down harder on someone because I want to make the, I want to help them understand how someone else might see what they've described. But in a case like this one, he got it. He didn't need to have it explained to him. He didn't need to be beaten over the head with, like, he, he already figured it out. It's the same thing with managing, really. I mean, if you have an employee who makes a pretty big mistake and they get it and they know that it's serious and they know they have to figure out a way to avoid it in the future, you don't need to berate them. I mean, that that part of it is already taken care of by them internally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Allison, before we get to our readers' questions, I realize that I wanted to ask you one other thing, which is something that um, somebody recently wrote a piece. I, I want to say it's for New York Mag. I can't remember exactly about professional ghosting. And it reminded me of a piece I wrote back uh, maybe a year or two ago that was like, why you never hear back from hiring managers. And it was a sort of like... Uh, fantasy scenario where these hiring managers have just left this really wonderful interview with a great candidate. And they're like, oh, we liked her so much. Should we just set all of her application materials on fire and like throw her phone number away? And, yeah, yeah, we should do that and sort of dance merrily around the flames of, of her professional hopes. Um, <laughs> but I was wondering, like, why, why are there so many stories where someone says, I interviewed twice for this job. They said I'd hear back, like, at the end of the week, and then I never heard from them again. Not like I applied and didn't hear, but, like, I was, like, second or third in line, and then they pretended I had died. Yeah, it's really weirdly common. So I get maybe more letters on this topic than almost any other, I would suspect, because it's so upsetting to people because they're not even, there's no closure. You're sitting there after your interview wondering, will I hear something today? Does it mean something that now two weeks have gone by and I haven't heard anything? Should I get back in touch with them? I mean, it's such a recipe for angst and and stress for people, Um, whereas most people can handle a rejection just fine, Mm -hmm. but it's that open-ended, it's ghosting and it sucks. Um, So why does it happen? I think in most cases when it happens, the hiring manager genuinely does intend to get back to the person. Hmm. So when they say things like, we'll be back with you in a week or two, they really mean it in the moment. But it's not a super high priority for them. Even if in the moment they think that it is, the reality is that it's not. And so they're sufficiently cavalier about it that they allow it to get pushed back and pushed back and other things come in and take its place and they have other priorities and they're okay with letting it drop. And that I think is the difference between hiring managers who do this and hiring managers who don't. I mean, everyone is busy for the most part, but if you actually get that this is a crappy thing to do to people, you're not going to let it drop. Yeah. Okay. Well, official ruling, both ask a manager and your prudence. 
If you are a hiring manager, please don't professionally ghost on people who interview. That doesn't mean you have to send a rejection to like everybody who sends you a resume. I'm sure that's lots and lots of people. But like if someone flew out to talk to you, if somebody came into the office, shoot them an email. Okay, so I want to get to some of our reader questions, and I actually wanted to start with a specific question because I know that you get to answer lots of queries about professional behavior and and how to handle, you know, difficult employees or difficult bosses, and I wanted to take something that's totally have, has nothing to do with the office um, that we could answer together, and this one is about uh, a parent whose gay son wants to go to a conservative religious college. Dear Prudence. My son has been openly gay for two years. He is now 16 and is starting to think about where he wants to go to college. His top pick is a conservative religious college that makes its students sign a statement of faith that includes a passage condemning homosexual behavior. The school is good academically, but not so great that I could understand why he would want to go there. Scholarship money isn't an issue. I can't figure out why he would want to go to a school that would condemn him if they knew he was gay. I asked him why he picked that school for his visit list, and he just shrugged and said it looked good to him. I don't understand this at all. I showed him some material that lists this school as among the top LGBT unfriendly schools, but it doesn't seem to matter to him, and he still wants to visit the school. What could he be thinking? What could he be thinking? What a great question. Um, Kids are baffling. Kids are baffling, and I almost wonder if that's part of it. I mean, I'm thinking about myself at 16, and I like to think I wouldn't have acted so against my self-interest, but if my mom really cared about something, I might have taken a position against it just because I was very contrary. Teenagers teenagers are the most contrarian beings on the planet. Um, and weirdly, in some ways, I see myself in this letter, um, which is surprising because I I also um, am, am queer and went to a religious college. Um, and I went to the religious college after sort of announcing to the world, I'm queer sometimes. Um, although it was not so conservative that students had to sign a statement of faith that condemned uh, homosexual behavior or, or relationship. So it's not it's not a direct um, like corollary, but I still, I did this, and I still am like, why is he doing this? Life's very strange. Well, will you will you talk about why you did? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I grew up uh, in a in a religious home, and and not a conservative religious home, not a religious home that would have condemned anyone for being gay, um, but definitely a home that was really like suffused with spirituality and with prayer and with you know thinking about God and, and one's spiritual life. And there was a part of me that was really drawn to that. And there was a part of me that was really like, oh, I'm so exhausted. I just don't even want to think about anything supernatural or spiritual. I just I just feel done. I just want to talk about like magazines and hair. Um, and, and there was a real part of me that um, like when I was considering different schools to go to, I applied to almost entirely schools on the East Coast or overseas that were not in any way affiliated with any sort of religious organization. And then I applied to one in Southern California that that is a, a, an evangelical Christian school. And I don't know that I could have quite articulated at the time why, other than the fact that I knew a lot of kids that had grown up with who were going to go there. When I visited, it felt really safe and really comfortable. It reminded me a lot of, like, places that I had spent a lot of time in. And I thought, man, 
You know, if I go to a different school, I'm really going to have to stretch. I'm going to have to ask myself a lot of uncomfortable questions. I'm going to have to come out probably to my family in a way that scares me. Um, And it would be so easy just to go here. Um, And so I got into that school and one other school that was just it's polar opposite in every way. And I just never answered that other acceptance letter. I just threw it out. Um, And I ended up going to that school and and really regretting it. But what's a little different about this is it doesn't sound like this letter writer is is a particularly religious person. She doesn't say anything. I assume it's a woman. It it could be a father. Um, But but they don't say anything about, you know, we're a part of this religion or my son and I belong to a church that's gay affirming. But now he wants to go to a conservative school. Um, So I'm not quite sure if. If, if his situation in any way reflects mine, it seems a lot stranger if you grew up in kind of a secular home to say, well, I wonder what it would feel like to, you know, repress my sexuality for the next four years. See, I would bet he has no idea what it would feel like because he's never he he hasn't yet had. Well, I don't know. Maybe this is making too many assumptions, but I think it's possible that if he's grown up in a home that's sort of the opposite of what you've described, that he might not fully appreciate what he would be signing up for. Yeah, it's certainly possible that he thinks, oh, wow, a spiritual school, a religious school. That's so interesting. I have no idea. Oh, that's what it would be like. Um, But. Yeah, it certainly sounds like the conversation that the letter writer and their son has had. It's been very cursory, like just sort of, so why do you want to go to that school? And he says, it looks good. Like, I think they should probably both dig a little deeper. Yeah, and especially if the parent is going to be paying for college, it's more than reasonable to to want to get some insight into what his thinking is here before. And really, if if the letter writer is paying for college, I think it's her prerogative to say she doesn't want to give money to an institution that she has serious ethical and moral issues with. Just like it would also be her prerogative if she's paying to steer him away from like a for-profit school that had terrible academics. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is such a funny situation because I feel like I'm encouraging a parent to use the fact that they're paying for their child's school to, like, you know, uh, manipulate their decision somehow. And I'm just picturing this kid being like, you know, screw you, mom and dad. I'm going to go to this conservative school that won't allow me to be who I truly am. And it's like, no, you have to go somewhere accepting. This is a very (laughs) strange scenario. It is very strange. Yeah. You know, but so, I mean, right now it sounds like he just wants to visit. And I actually think it could be a good idea to agree to take him to visit because that might be the best way to help him get a more reality-based understanding of of what he's considering doing. Hmm. It, It sounds like both of us feel like what's probable here is that he just doesn't understand yet how conservative this school is. Do you think there's a possibility that there's a part of him that feels I, I I don't know if maybe he goes to church with friends or if he he's been getting a message like outside of the home that is telling him like being gay is is bad and and you should feel bad about it and you should be this religion instead. Like do you think it's possible that that he's feeling some sort of conflict about his sexuality and part of him is is feels feels like he should go to this school to to repress himself yeah i mean that's sort of worst case scenario with this one um yeah which is all the more reason for the parent to really i mean this can't be a cursory conversation you've really got to sit down and find out what's going on because if it is something like that that's you don't want to treat that casually yeah yeah i know i i hope that's not the case and luckily there's not anything in this letter aside from 
the setup that suggests, oh, these details tell me that my son is like self-loathing or, or, or hates being gay or feels like there's something wrong with him. But I think especially if you're the parent of a gay teenager, you should really err on the side of making sure that you, A, of all, know how they feel about themselves and B, of all, offer them a lot of support. Um, because it can be really easy, um, especially in parts of the country that are nowhere near the coasts, to absorb a ton of anti-gay messaging by the time you're in your teens. And even if you have parents who are like, fairly accepting. If you don't talk much about it, it's really easy to pick up a lot more like hateful messaging from other people and kind of if if your parents just once in a while say things like tolerance is good and being gay is fine and and yet you're hearing like at school or from, you know, youth groups or other kids like it's awful, it's awful, it's awful. Like she should the, the letter writer should absolutely check in and see like are you okay? Like is part of you trying to punish yourself? Is part of you trying to to you know, harm yourself in some way? I, I think that this letter writer stands a really good chance of figuring out what's going on with their son and, and figuring out how to be really helpful and supportive. I agree. And I hope we get an update. Yes. Yeah. Tell us, you know, write us back and tell us that your your son got into a great school that does not require students to sign a statement of faith, like opposing gay people. Let's 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 move away from that, like as a society. <laughs> Let's let's talk about letters that are possibly fake. Um, I, you and I get, I think, very different types of letters. I get a lot of letters about a lot of different topics. Every once in a while, I'll get a letter where I'll think, this seems made up. This seems like someone's fantasy. And those letters are usually pretty easy to spot. Like, it's pretty clear when someone's writing, like, Dear Prudence, I never thought that this would happen to me, but... And then describes this, like, very specific, usually sexual scenario that just reads like someone's fantasy. So with that caveat, I don't get a lot of these letters. I think I've gotten one recently, but I also want to acknowledge that life's a really rich tapestry, and sometimes things happen that are very, very hard to believe. Um, And I want to get your input on this, and I want to see if, Ava, you've ever gotten a question like this, uh, and if you think it is fake, and then I think we should still answer it, even if it is made up. I like that approach. Um, I have gotten a couple of letters over the years where I was pretty sure they were fake and didn't print them, and I have two where I didn't start to think they were fake until after I had printed them, Mm. and and started. I'm not sure why it didn't hit me until afterward, but but I, it's a weird thing that people out there are spending their time writing fake letters. Yeah, into I mean you don't columns. you don't go through the inbox assuming like, all right, a lot of people are trying to trick me today. Yeah, I would like you to find someone who actually does this as a hobby and have them on because I have lots of questions for them. Oh my god, that's a really good idea. Okay, if you're listening and you have ever written a fake letter to an advice column, either to me, to ask a manager, to to anyone. Um, please get in touch. Um, you can email us. You can call the Dear Prudence phone number. Um, you know, tweet at me. Just, just get in touch if you've ever written a fake letter, particularly if your fake letter has ever gotten printed and answered. Because um, we want to talk to you about what did you get out of it and where do you come up with your ideas. Yes. And I want to be clear. I don't mean to be a school marm about this. Like, I'm not condemning anyone for doing it. I think it's kind of funny. But I'm I, still really curious about what drives it. It's certainly odd. Like, I, 
I am also curious. Yeah, I don't think that it, it it's certainly not a crime. You should not be punished in any sort of I promise this is not a trap. We're not trying to get you to like identify yourselves so that we can yell at you for for wasting our our time because you know, we're here for entertainment. But yeah, I do want to know. I want to know what drives you. I'm super curious. So, all that said, uh the letter that we are talking about today uh is called Blackmailing Boss. Um and I'm going to read it. Dear Prudence, I work as an administrator for a small nonprofit and my boss is evil. He makes me clean his house and act as a chauffeur and yells at me for hours over stupid things like losing a nail while setting up his new TV stand. My wife is sick of me complaining about my job and badgers me about when I'm going to quit. What she doesn't know is that I can't quit because my boss knows a secret about me. A couple of years ago, I had an affair with a coworker. It gets worse. And we decided to do something risky one evening and hold a quote-unquote date in our office. The office CCTV caught us engaged in some, well, unconventional behaviors, some of which included urination. My boss confronted me with the footage and has threatened to post it online. My affair partner was wearing a Spider-Man mask, so she stopped coming to work the next day, and we never heard from her again. My face is fully visible in the video, so there's no escape for me. I am dying to quit, but I will die if he releases the video, and my wife will divorce me for sure. Is there any escape from this? And that's the letter. So it's the Spider-Man mask that pushed me over the edge with this one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's, I don't have enough imagination, mm-hmm. or I'm too much of a prude. But the thing is that if this happened, I don't know that you would need to include that detail. Mm-hmm. There's a few details in here that I don't think you would necessarily need to include in your advice letter. There's parts of the letter that are suspiciously lacking in detail and parts of the letter that are suspiciously overly detailed. And that, to me, usually suggests that fakery is possible. Agreed. Not certain, because I'm willing to believe that in the history of time, some office worker has, while having an affair with one of their coworkers, peed on or near one another uh, in a sexual context at work while being unwittingly filmed. And wearing a Spider-Man mask. And wearing a Spider-Man mask. I don't think it's happened a lot. I don't think it happens regularly. I don't think there's an epidemic of Spider-Man piss enthusiasts at our offices. But... Yeah, yeah. Life is a very rich tapestry, and people do really bonkers things. I will say that my worry, when I think I might have a fake letter, Mm -hmm. is that I feel terribly guilty about saying it if I'm wrong. Because then I think I've just signaled to this person that their problem is so weird and bizarre that that it's not even believable by someone who deals with other people's problems for a living. And then I feel awful. That would be terrible if there's someone out there who's like genuinely torn up about this and here we are just saying well obviously no one's ever been this dumb right he's just like but i was i was that dumb um yeah and i certainly would would regret that more than the idea of some guy out there being like yes i got the spider-man piss letter in like my life's goal has been achieved like that's okay i don't mind if that guy gets one off on me like you win this one pal like congratulations and i'm okay with that and i actually think there's real value in 
even if it didn't happen, printing it and talking about it, because there may be elements of it that are similar for someone else, even if if not the entire thing. I mean, people like not infrequently have affairs at work. We, I think we both get plenty of letters that, that tell us that, you know, it's again, not everyone's doing it, but people do. Um, people have terrible bosses. Uh, people sometimes get blackmailed or, 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 you know, pressured into staying at a job they don't want to be at because their boss knows some personal detail about their lives. Um, and sometimes people get caught on, you know, CCTV having sex with someone they are not supposed to be having sex with. So while the details all put together do seem a, a little unlikely, um, sometimes people have similar problems. So let's, um, let's tackle it. Let's say this guy is uh, worried he's going to be trapped in a job he hates for the rest of his life um, or else his boss is going to ruin his marriage. What, what would we advise him to do? Well, I think you've got to talk to a lawyer because what the, if this is true, what the boss is doing is actually illegal and your options aren't to just be an indentured servant at this job for the rest of your life or mm-hmm. have the video get out and your wife divorces you. I mean, a lawyer could explain to your boss that blackmailing you is illegal and and really, as full of landmines as the whole situation sounds, you don't want to be navigating it on your own. You want professional help. And the good news is there is professional help available for this because it does get into legal stuff. Right. And, you know, a lawyer has presumably seen a lot of stuff that's worse than this. Like, I, yeah. I think part of the power of the blackmailer is this idea that what you did is so bad that if anyone ever found out, they would just reject you utterly and, and you would just be cast out of society. And there are lawyers out there who deal with something like this on a regular basis and would just say, yeah, we can we can handle this. Like, this is not insurmountable. You are not trapped. Absolutely. And the great thing about having a lawyer working for you is that now you have this like dedicated full-time advocate whose whole job is to take care of you and get the outcome that you want. And that's such a good feeling when you've been in a situation that is making you feel desperate and trapped. Yeah, especially if you're working at a small nonprofit where I imagine you feel desperate and trapped a lot of the time. Agreed. So let's say worst case scenario, you get the lawyer, the lawyer's helpful, um, you're able to quit your job, but your boss is just like spiteful enough that they don't really care if they get in legal trouble and they tell your wife anyway, or they post it online in some limited form, or they, you know, get in touch with enough people in your life that even though you were able to leave the job and get out from under this person's thumb, you know, your marriage has ended. And now a lot of people you know, know that at least at one point in your life, um, you know, you peed on a lady wearing a Spider-Man mask or a lady wearing a Spider-Man mask peed on you. So I'm not sure that this is good advice, but part of me thinks at that point you just own it. Yeah, okay. Because really, what are your options? You can live in shame forever, Mm -hmm. or you can come to terms with it. And maybe there's a side benefit of that, which is like, if this is a thing that you're into, by going public, you might get more opportunities to participate in it. Allison, that is one of the most charmingly optimistic answers (laughs) I have ever heard. (laughs) I'm practical. Yeah, no, you're very practical. And I think that's a good point, right? Like, if, if this is just hanging over your head and there's no way out and and even though you quit your job and you find a better job, your boss still, you know, gets in touch with your wife and says, guess what your partner did? Um, you know, people get divorced. It will be painful. Obviously, your partner will be, you know, at the least surprised, probably more along the lines of, you know, angry and 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 feeling betrayed. Um You'll apologize and try to make things right, and 
they'll probably stay mad and you'll you'll live like you will live. You will survive the end of your marriage. Um, you know, the the sort of end of this is I'm dying to quit, but I'll also die if he releases the video. And there's just, again, that power of the blackmailer of I can't bear things the way that they are, but I also can't bear the consequences of what will happen if I'm exposed. Um, and to just sort of remember, especially if you can get something of a support network in place, even if it's just a good lawyer and a good therapist. Um, I, I also think this person should get a good therapist because whatever's about to happen is probably going to be at least mildly traumatic um, to just work through. Like the worst will happen when things come out and then things will slowly but surely get better. Like life will not be a series of Spider-Man piss revelations. You know, like once the cat's out of the bag, things start to get a little bit better. One hopes. Um, but yeah, I think, I mean, carrying around the feeling that you have a deep, dirty secret that all your energy has to go into keeping hidden. I is mean, a not that dirty. Urine is mostly sterile. <laughs> all right, fair enough. But like that feeling of shame that there's mm-hmm. this thing hanging over you and you have to keep people in your life from hearing about it forever, apparently. That's, that's terrible. That's terrible quality of life. That's a miserable way to live. I might argue, I mean, I'm sure that there are exceptions to this that I would acknowledge if someone pointed them out. But in general, I think it's probably better to deal with the shame of it coming out and then being able to live without it hanging over you. Yeah. And, and I think I, I think another thing that this would probably need to happen a little bit further out. But, you know, consider, um, are you the type of person who tends to just grin and bear an unbearable situation until... You are so stressed out and so frustrated and you feel so trapped that you do something to blow your entire life up. Because to me, somebody who is married and has a job who, you know, goes to work and does those things on some level is trying to blow up their life, right? Like they're trying to ruin their professional life and they're trying to ruin their marriage. I I don't mean to say that this person like wanted all these things to happen to them, but like clearly some part of them was so just like worn down with their bad job and and whatever other pressures they were experiencing that they did something that exhibits you know pretty bad judgment um and would have long-lasting and far-reaching consequences so i think another thing this person should add to their list of things to do is like figure out some better stress management techniques um so that in the future if you think i hate my job i feel trapped in my marriage i feel like i can't talk about this with anybody you know you're able to deal with those feelings healthily before you get to the point of, I'm just going to go do something really outrageous at work that would ruin my life if people found out. Like, you should you, you should have a pressure valve before that happens. I agree. Lawyer and therapist. Lawyer and therapist. And best of luck. And if you made this up, congratulations. Your answer's on the air. Uh, So next, we're going to play a voicemail from someone who has a question about behavior after a friend dumping. Dear Prudence, I recently went on a four-day birthday trip to Mexico to celebrate my 30th birthday with three of my closest friends who have never met each other. Unfortunately, my best friend's boyfriend broke up with her two days before the trip. My friend told me that she would try her hardest to not let it affect her time on the trip, and I told her that I would be there for her whenever she needed to have a pep talk, and of course, I would understand if she had to excuse herself from any activities due to the circumstances. Well, instead of being sad and depressed, my friend turned angry and volatile the entire trip. She would lash out at random moments and yell at everybody, especially me. 
For example, we rented a car and she had a ridiculous road rage while driving. Both of my friends came to me separately and asked if I could take over driving because they felt unsafe. Additionally, she would have outbursts of anger if anyone said anything that irritated her. Overall, she was abrasive, had a mean tone to her voice, and was rude the entire time. It got so bad that my friend sat me down in the middle of the trip and asked me why I would allow someone to treat me that way. It wasn't until then that I realized that this has been happening for years. My best friend can be an extremely volatile, angry person with no regard for other people's feelings. I confronted her after the trip using multiple examples, and believe me, there were plenty, of how she had been rude and hurtful. But not only did she respond in an uber-defensive way, she absolutely does not see anything wrong with her behavior due to her high sense of self. My question is, how do I proceed from here? I don't want to end a good friendship as we've been very close for eight years, and besides her attitude problem, she's been a great friend to me. So without her acknowledging any wrongdoing on the trip and just in general, I'm at a loss as to how I can proceed. Help. Well, Allison, what are your thoughts? Well, the whole time she was describing what happened on their trip, I was wondering if it was new behavior that she'd never seen before. So I thought it was interesting and and maybe not terribly surprising when she got to the end and she said she had this realization Mm -hmm. that her friend has always been kind of horrible to her. I don't know. I think she's got to decide what she wants. I mean, the friend clearly is not up for a collaborative conversation about what's been going on between them and is clearly defensive and not willing to see it her way. So I think the caller needs to figure out, is she okay with these terms? You know, she has to see the friend for being who she is. And she's going to be rude. She's going to yell at her. She's going to be defensive. She's not going to be willing to talk through problems. Are you okay with that? I mean, that sounds like such a loaded question. Like, of course, the answer should be no. Mm -hmm. But sometimes people choose to stay in friendships that they're getting some good things out of, knowing that part of the package is this bad stuff. And I mean, I I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. Mm -hmm. I do think you have to... You have to make the right calculations. You have to know, okay, if I'm going to go on a trip with this person, this stuff is likely to happen. So maybe I don't want to go on a trip with them or be enclosed in a car with them. You've got to, you know, you have to sort of modify your behavior based on the facts that you know about the person. Right. Yeah. No, I I think that's that's absolutely true. And sometimes people will think about relationships in terms of, well, if a person can't hear criticism and they have a particular personality trait that you don't like and they're not going to change it, you know you should end the friendship. And there's certainly something to be said for that for certain types of behavior. Um, But I think there are also some friendships where you think, um, you know, I really care about this person. We have a lot of different shared experiences and and, um, they do support me in a lot of ways. And there are boundaries I can put on them to sort of minimize my having to deal with this behavior that's hard for me or that I don't like. Like I can put this friendship in a particular category where we're maybe not going to spend every day together. I'm maybe not going to invite them on trips, but uh, our relationship still has a lot of meaning for me and I'm not going to cut them out of my life entirely. That said, I do feel like one thing that's pretty important is if someone's driving in a way that is unsafe Don't worry about sparing their feelings, you know, whether that goes for somebody who drives after a couple of drinks and doesn't consider it drunk driving. And they're like, no, I'm totally fine, Um, which some people I think sort of think is like a magic shield from from the possibility of drunk driving. Like, no, 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 I'm fine. Okay, I wasn't asking if you were fine. I was asking if you'd had more than three drinks in the last hour, which like you have. And according to science makes you over the legal limit. Um, 
or if someone's driving in a super aggressive, angry way, especially if two other people are whispering to you, I wish this person wasn't driving. Um, that to me is in a super different category. And, and, and that's something where I think a lot of people, and I, I certainly do this too, like you get in a car and you kind of forget because we do it so often. You kind of forget like, oh, hey, driving is, it involves like a 2,000 pound machine of metal and glass and people can die. Um, because we do it all the time. We think like, it's fine. Like bad things won't happen to me. But if you're in a car and the driver is making you feel unsafe, I, I, I say go for the jugular. Just be like, stop the car right now. I'm getting out. Or like, you need to like hand me the keys. Like you cannot keep doing this. You just cut somebody off and made it like an unsignaled left-hand turn across three lanes of traffic. I, I don't care if I hurt your feelings right now because I'd like to see the end of this day. Yeah, I agree. And I think, too, you have a responsibility to other people who might be impacted by that driver if you don't speak up. I couldn't tell from the letter if they just let the driving continue or if the caller ended up taking over the driving. But it but did I'm not sound like they had a conversation about her driving. It sounds like they waited to talk about everything at the end of the trip. Um, but maybe they did take away the keys, in which case, fantastic. You handled that beautifully. Congratulations. But yeah, when it comes to something as as you know, significant as driving, like, don't worry about somebody's feelings. Go for common sense. Yeah. And that's this thing that people do in all kinds of situations where they compromise their safety because they don't want to be rude or make a scene. Right. Yes. Yes. No, that's absolutely how people are just like, well, I I don't want to make anyone uncomfortable. I guess I'll just die. Yeah. (laughs) And And you shouldn't have to do that. Right. I mean, no one thinks of it in such stark, blunt terms, right. but they should, because that is the trade-off that they're making in their head. Right, right, right. And I, I'm just, I'm picturing that kind of driver right now, and I've occasionally been behind, you know, in a car with somebody doing that, and it's awful, and it's terrifying, and it's not something that you should just have to endure, like, well, I'll just put up with this for the next 20 minutes, and then I'll never get behind the wheel with them again. It's like, no, 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 like, go ahead and speak up. But yeah, as you said, uh, you know, it's got to be hard to be close to someone who's both really rude and abrasive and bad at taking criticism. Um, that certainly is going to put a pretty serious limitation on intimacy or at least any kind of real emotional intimacy that I can think of. Um, but I, I, I do also think that there there's more options than just cut this person off or accept that she's going to be a jerk, you know, 70% of the time. And I think that's like... If in the moment, especially it kind of sounded like on the trip, this person was maybe rude to other people and to maybe like wait staff or, or, or you know, service workers. Um, I also think it's OK to sort of gently say when someone's being really rude in public, like, that's a really rude thing to say. And you don't have to say it in, in this way of starting a fight like you're you're a jerk and you're awful and no one likes you. But you can just kind of quietly say, like, that's a rude thing to say. Um, and if they blow up. You know, that to me suggests that maybe they're not somebody that's worth spending a lot of time with. Um, But yeah, I I also very much feel like even if you do decide, you know, this person's worth being around, if they're just being an absolute asshole to people in public, go ahead and say that's rude. Um, You you have the right to say that. And you can say that in a way that's not cruel and that's not dramatic and that's not trying to instigate a fight. but you also don't have to just like quietly absorb all their crappy behavior. Yeah, I think a lot of this is about realizing that you have power in the situation and being willing to use it. I mean, you have the power to decide you don't want to be friends with the person. You have the power to get out of the car. You have the power to, to call someone out on rudeness. I mean, it's not you don't have to just take it quietly. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think a lot of people feel like 
if someone is being rude or aggressive, if I say anything, that's just as bad. So a lot of times really rude and aggressive people get their way because uh, no one else wants to, you know, start a fight with someone who's already being rude and aggressive. Um, But you absolutely have the right to say, that's really mean. Um, and, and to say, I'm going to leave. Or, you know, if, if you can't behave like a human being right now, I'm going to go. Um, and that that's really okay. Yeah. And I think your point too about emotional intimacy is really well taken. That, I mean, there is a point where if all your conversations are guarded and you can't ever talk about anything that has upset you that the other person has done, and if you get in trouble when you bring up anything that happened on the trip, I mean, there's, there's a point where there isn't emotional intimacy possible in that mm-hmm. context. And it's important to keep an eye out for that happening. Because either if you don't, that's how you find yourself in these years long friendships that are totally unfulfilling and borderline abusive and, and just feeling like you're trapped in it. I mean, I feel like that's kind of how you end up being the guy who like pees on his Spider-Man mask girlfriend at work, right? Is like this guy hated his job for years and years and years, felt miserable and trapped under his boss. And then, you know, kind of, had a breakdown where he blew up his life. And that's not to suggest that everyone who has like a kind of domineering friend is doomed to pee on their coworkers. Um, But there is something to be said for checking in with yourself periodically about relationships and asking, do I frequently feel like I can't speak up? Do I frequently feel like this other person will lose it if I say no? Or if I say, you know, it really bothers me when you do that. Um, and, you know, check in, check in, you know, on a scale of one to 10, check in and do something when you're at a four or a five, because when you reach nine or 10, peeing on Spider-Man starts to look really appealing. And, um, I just, I want to save as many people from that as possible, unless that's what you really want to do. And you've checked in with everybody and you're all like good to go. And your relative spouses aren't going to be, you know, horrified when they find out like then yes, go with my blessing, pee on Spider-Man. Allison, I'm so glad that we got to talk today. Like, I cannot tell you how fun it has been. And I hope that we can get you back on the show again. Well, I would love to do that. Thank you. Awesome. So one of the aspects of modern life that is really interesting is everyone sort of thought as television has migrated in a lot of ways to the Internet, like, We've transcended the commercial. No longer will anyone watch a commercial. Um, and I've found that that's less true. Um, and, and what seems to happen more often is a lot of streaming services, if they do have commercials, will simply show you the same commercial every commercial break for the entire show that you're watching. And if, like many of us, you're watching multiple episodes of a show at once, you will see that commercial Upwards of 20 times in, like, a single afternoon. And I'm thinking particularly right now of the new Panera Bread commercial, um, which is, like, I I did not think a commercial would trouble me more than the latest University of Phoenix one with that horrible remake of If I Only Had a Brain. And this one's definitely, like, gunning for a second. It's this narrator who sounds sounds like someone told her, like, put a smile in your voice. So she talks like this, like her voice sounds wet and it's deeply troubling. Like no one sounds like that in their real life. In a good, clean salad, every ingredient is a main ingredient. Panera has clean salads. I'm so excited about the clean salads. Strawberry salad with chicken. 
At Panera, food as it should be. And I understand that they're just looking for like a popular buzzword and people talk about clean eating and other folks more more well-informed than myself have talked about why using the word clean to refer to eating is sort of ridiculous and has a lot more to do with, um, you know, bad received ideas about uh, what sort of food is good versus what sort of food is you know, bad um, than it does to do with the actual cleanliness of whatever food you're putting in your body. Um, but it also just really freaks me out that like a national chain is referring to their salads as clean. Like I've been to Panera, it's delicious, but like everything's just cheese and sugar. Um, and so the idea that like, come eat our candy salads, they'll clean your body from the inside out. It's just like, I don't want clean food sounds like it's been sterilized in a way that's really distressing to me. And um, something about seeing that commercial over and over again, um, I realize this is not a real problem. Like, I could just stop watching so much TV, um, and I can also just eat elsewhere. Like, I, I, I don't wish any of you to pity me. Um, but it's a very weird choice to have made. Um, and it, there's something about the next time you see that commercial, listen to see if you can hear what I mean when I say someone told her to put a smile in her voice. It's it's the audible equivalent of smizing, and it freaks me out. It freaks me out bad. Um, and it makes me never want to eat a salad again. And it makes me want to eat dirt, frankly. Want us to answer your question? Call and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 401-371-3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. No one has yet asked for us to do that. So please start asking because I want to hear what we can make you sound like. If you like, you can also record your question using the Voice Memo app or its equivalent on your phone. Keep it short. 30 seconds, a minute tops. We don't need every single detail. Not that your life's not important, just that we've got a lot of questions to get to. So send me your questions at prudence at slate.com. Our producer is Casey Miner. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Okay, see you back here next week. Eat clean.